Queer Relationships, an IM clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ plus community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Welcome to Queer Relationships. Some of the episodes in our lineup are what we call a Relationships Q&A, a safe space for everyday folks to talk with a therapist about a problem or topic with the hope that others can relate and gain insight into their own journeys. Well, she identified as a lesbian, so that wasn't a problem to her, but the fact that I identified as bi and had been married and didn't leave him because of my sexuality, like that was the key for her. If I had left him because I was like so leaning lesbian on the bi side that I could not be with a man anymore, then that would have been like, oh, okay, that's proof enough that like, you know, you're not going to leave me for a man next week. Many people judge and hate on bisexuality, claiming that bisexual people just can't make up their mind or that maybe they're just too scared to fully come out. Other queer people often judge the bisexual person and their sexual orientation, disregarding the complexity of the spectrum that we laud and celebrate as LGBTQ plus people. Today's guest clearly articulates with her many examples and questions the plight many bisexual people encounter. She tells the story of being married to a man, and after her former husband's addiction and trauma settled in, she decided to move on, only to find that she was challenged by other queer women. Underneath her tales of marriage, dating, and trauma, you can hear her subtle yearning to trust herself and, oddly enough, a yearning to trust love even if the data for what is trustworthy was with her the entire time. I just want to leave a trigger warning here that her and I talk about trauma, and at the end of this episode, I'll leave some helpful remarks when dealing with and or recovering from trauma. I hope that you thoroughly enjoy this episode. I totally enjoyed sitting with this guest. Take a listen. Well, yeah, tell me a little bit about what's going on. Uh, so I thought I'd want to talk about kind of like being by Pan, which I know you said that you are as well. So it'll be mm-hmm. interesting to yeah. see how much is overlapping and how much is different. Um, I feel like lots of queer stories are, I knew when I was six, I knew when I was seven, you know, I knew when I was looking at someone of the same gender and was like, oh, whoa. Uh, but because I am bi, I didn't. Um mm-hmm. Because I looked at men and was like, ah, yes, handsome, lovely, no problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then w- grew up in a really conservative household. And so obviously that was expected. And so when I fit the mold, there was just sort of no further discovery needed. Like, ah, mm-hmm. you are straight, done. Yes. Um, so I didn't actually realize that I was by until after I was married to a man. Okay. Um we were comparing notes and I think I even said out loud, like, well, no, that's not attraction because I feel that way towards women too. And then there was like a pause in the conversation where we both looked at each other. Oh, Oh my. Yes. Um, So that was, that was uncomfortable. Uh, Worked that out in my twenties. Didn't actually come out to my family until after my husband and I separated. And I don't think I ever would have if we hadn't, you know, we didn't separate because of my sexuality. Um, So I think I would have just kind of like taken that secret to my grave because I figured if I was in a straight appearing relationship, it just didn't matter. And so why would I face all of the potential rejection if, you know, I was just going to be with this man until I died and, Mm-hmm. It would be none of their business. Yeah. So it's interesting, I think, the ways that my views on like being a gay Christian have evolved over time because I remember thinking and looking back at this, I'm like, well, of course. I remember thinking to myself, if you can choose to be straight, then that's what God wants. So that's what you should do. Mm-hmm. And I can choose to be straight. So, but like, it didn't occur to me the fact that I could choose to be straight when I was very definitely not straight. Sure. sure. <laughs> I didn't have any influences saying, wait a minute, what are you even saying here? Um, so yeah, I, I think it 
was just kind of a slightly different story than a lot of people who are just gay or lesbian and who kind of like try to fit in that. Mm -hmm. I just know that I didn't fit because I didn't have any frame of reference. So I was like, this is just how it is. And I think growing up in purity culture, I'd never had any access to my own sexuality until I was engaged or married, really. I mean, did not masturbate, did not anything. And so then getting married and then realizing like, oh, oh. Yeah. (laughs) Oh. Wait a second. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like religion played a really big role in maybe your lack of self-discovery. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, as a young girl in the church, the messages you get about your body are very resounding. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think the most positive message was like, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But how that played out in reality was you should eat well, stay skinny, you know, be conventionally attractive. That was like how you make your body a good temple of the Holy Spirit. There was no like, this is, you know, I don't know. There really wasn't a very positive message taught to us even around that. And the worst messages that were being taught much more often were put put to death the flesh and you know you have the ability to make your brother stumble and your brother by the way could be someone your age it could be an adult it could be an elderly person anyone and you know this is a message that you're taught from like seven eight nine at the latest i mean this this starts really young and just the idea that your body is inherently bad and sinful and shameful and that how you dress can control the men around you in such a way that if they behave inappropriately towards you, it is your fault. And I was 13, I think, when that really hit me. Um, I was living at home, obviously, 13. Um, but my dad's college roommate fell on hard times and came to stay with us for a while. And uh, after a while, it kind of came out that like he was not behaving entirely appropriately towards me. And I remember I was I was like 13 going on eight. I had no idea what was going on. And so uh, my mom sat me down and talked to me about it. And I remember after she left, I just laid on my bed and just kind of stared at the wall. And I was like, what did I wear? Like, how did I dress? What did I say? Like, oh, yeah. And I think people don't, sorry, people don't think about that repercussion of that teaching, you know, that it didn't even occur to me. Like, that is a grown ass man and it is his responsibility, not mine. Uh, but I think I kind of carried that with me. What we're talking about here is something called carried feelings. We'll get to this later, but I want you to mark this as part of the conversation because it'll come up down the road. If, if I compliment a man, I might be asking for it. You know, if I dress in a way that I feel attractive, I could be, you know, asking for it. I could be causing my brothers to stumble. I can make them do that by how I dress. Mm. Um, and I think that that's a double-edged sword because then it also taught the men around me that they were not responsible for their actions. Yeah. That, you know, if I behaved or dressed or spoke or, you know, showed interest, that that was implicit consent. And and I think that all of that sort of helps cloud the question of, like, can I trust my body? Mm-hmm. Like, is it, who does it belong to? Does it belong to my future husband? Does it belong to God? Does it belong to my father, weirdly enough? It was like a weird, not in my church, but I know the like purity balls and stuff. Like there's just a lot of mixed messages about like the purpose of my body and who it belongs to and what God wants me to do with it. And I think because of that, tangled along with sort of that internalized homophobia of like, well, that's bad, that's wrong, that's unnatural. Um, And I was very active in like all of the Bible memorization. And so I knew all of those verses from a pretty young age. Um, So yeah, I think kind of the combination of really terrible messages about like, like desire and 
your physical body and like all of that uh, kind of helped play into not knowing that I was five because I was like, whatever my body wants is wrong. However, you know, I present myself is probably wrong. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And somewhere along the way, no one told you that your body belonged to you. For you to discover and you to, to see what it does and where it does and how it does and with whom it does. And that would have been such a liberating message for you to hear, I could imagine. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's the thing I'm still realizing at 32 that like, you know, I'm talking to people who are not, sorry, not like talking to dating, talking to like comparing notes with people who are like 19, 20, 21. And I'm like, wow, you're way further along than I am. Or <laughs> <laughs> like life and knowing what you want. It's, mm -hmm. it's definitely interesting. Um, I dated a woman for about a year who did not grow up in any of that. And it was breathtaking just to see right. the difference in like her her parents were actually less supportive than mine uh, my parents have adjusted quite a bit to my coming out and i don't think they would say that they like it but um we were raised very independently and so they're like if that's you know where you are that's where you are and we'll meet her and we'll accept her we don't have to like it it doesn't matter mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, with, with her just realizing how much of that baggage she's not carrying just from like having never been taught that men's reactions to her are because of her and how she dresses and how she acts. It was just, it was very interesting and enlightening because I've been around so many people who were raised like that, that it's mm -hmm. just, you don't realize it's not normal until you get out of there and you're like, whoa, I was having a conversation uh, with a friend I met on Twitter who is trans and she both didn't grow up in that and didn't grow up being socialized female. And so the combination of that, she was just like, okay, tell me that again, because that makes no sense. Okay, now tell me this again. <laughs> Did you grow up in a cult? Well, maybe a little. Actually, yeah, <laughs> I know. But yeah, it's, it's definitely been really interesting. And I think coming to that realization that like my nerves don't go to anyone else's brain mm, like mm -hmm. it is not possible for my body to exist primarily for someone else rather that be god or parents or future husband which by the way that message of your body belongs to your future husband mm -hmm. i can't yeah I, I think i'm coming to a lot of these realizations really late but it's it's healthy and good and I wonder what would have happened if we had just stayed together and that had just kind of been the rest of my life and I wonder how many people are still there you know in a similar situation mm -hmm. yeah I do think a lot you know I think a lot of people hear the rhetoric from the church and their their religious backgrounds and I think that one of the major kickers is that it's very tribal and i don't mean that in a bad way but when we're part of a tribe we belong and the belonging is the the mortar that keeps you in the belonging is the believing so if you believe the right thing then you get to keep your little membership badge and the moment you stop believing is the moment you're kicked out and that's scary that's really scary for a lot of people because it's not just being kicked out of a church building. It's kicked out of the religion, sometimes the family. Mm -hmm. and, and people are petrified. Uh, I read um, Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. um, I actually had gotten it for my birthday in October and I started reading it the night I left in November. And it was like perfect timing. But one of her core tenets of that book is that you can kind of neglect yourself you can put aside who you are to belong but you don't actually belong in mm -hmm. that world you're you're always you know afraid that someone's going to figure out who you really are um and that the only way to belong is to first belong to yourself and mm -hmm. kind of in the deepest of who you actually are and then you can bring your full self to a group and be accepted or rejected for who you actually are but even if you're rejected there is still you know that deep belonging to yourself Mm -hmm. And that helped me a lot, you know, right at a time when I was kind of considering, like, 
do I come out to my family? Because if I leave this man who I've been with for the last 10 years, like I'm not going to be true to myself if I continue to only date men. And so, you know, with this kind of terrible person um, that I am, you know, I'm, I'm considering all of that. Do I, do I stay and never know this part of myself and be in a relationship I know is not good for me or, you know, do I risk everything and come out? And I think part of what hurts so much about that is wondering if my extended family, my friends, my, you know, my past functionally, if they knew how terrible my relationship was, would still have preferred me to stay out of concern for my soul or whatever, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Let me see if I can kind of articulate what I'm feeling here, but I think, I'm going to just be really bold here. I think religion has this idea of the soul really backwards. As, as I sit in this office and I work with people day after day after day, what feels like the soul is right here, right now. It is how alive, how in love with myself am I so that I can get out there and love other people really well. And if we don't love how we love, it's going to be really hard to love someone else. And for, and this is kind of my major beef with religion, when they can't, when they're professing this message of love, but they can't respect how love shows up, it feels like a major contradiction to me. And I would never say that in your own body you should suffer so that later on you can reap some sort of benefit. That just seems so backwards to me. Yeah. It sounds like you found some serious bravery to make the, the right decision for yourself. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, that was a couple of years ago now, and I'm definitely, you know, more of myself. I feel like my life fits me better, that, you know, I feel more permission to arrange my, even my physical space in ways that work for me rather than are what I think they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I definitely have. It was interesting uh, dating this woman for about a year and a half. Um, there are places where I feel like, this is probably not a popular opinion, but where I feel sometimes just as disconnected from kind of the binary gay and lesbian community as I do like the straight community, because I cannot imagine not having the ability to be attracted to half of the population. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that plays out in ways that we we don't necessarily understand. One of the interesting ways it plays out with me is I have really close friendships kind of with both men and women. And there's sort of an inherent, when you're straight, like, all right, well, don't have too close of friendships with men. And when you are gay, okay, well, don't have too close of friendships with women. And when you are bi or pan, there's there's not a like a safe, let's just say, don't like, who do I who do I not have friends with? Everybody. I have the potential to be attracted to any adult person. So like, should I just not be friends with any adults? Um, but that that played out a lot in my last relationship of like there was sort of still this inherent distrust of um my male friendships, which you know, I didn't have any distrust of her male friendships because she identified as lesbian Mm -hmm. um, or of her female friendships. It was just, it's interesting how much that societal expectations still applies of like, well, men and women just can't really be friends. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it, it was just interesting because it's hard to say, like, I for me, there's a very big difference between romantic and non-romantic relationships. Even when there is like emotional closeness, there's, there's, a, there's a line, you know, there are certain lines that I consider this is a relationship and this is not. And I try and negotiate that very honestly with my friends and with my partners. Um, but yeah, it, 
it just kind of struck me that maybe there is sort of a too gay for a straight relationship and too straight for a gay relationship mm -hmm. that we kind of live in that center of how do we navigate and i don't think it really gets talked about very much despite the number of people who fall whether you know more attracted to one or the other but fall kind of in that spectrum somewhere mm -hmm. of how you can kind of swap the binary norms between being straight and gay but you there's not good rules for if you are bi yes <laughs> all those things one of the ways that i personally kind of delineate here and it helps me kind of navigate some of this is to say my sexual orientation is bi but culturally i'm gay and that really helps me make some distinctions because i think to live to, to fall in love with a woman and kind of exercise that part of my bisexuality, but then to live as a straight man in that cultural way is not me, not appealing. Um, and so the cultural identity as gay, even though my orientation might be bi, helps me kind of delineate how I negotiate those friendships with women and even with men. Straight men is very different than with a gay man. Mm. No? Definitely. Mm. That's a good way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And I think it also kind of short circuits that like, do I still get to be gay if I am dating someone of the opposite gender? Like, For sure. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That kind of straight passing imposter syndrome of like, mm -hmm do I still get to belong? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And that belonging is a huge question. That I think is at the core of what we really fear. Yeah. yeah definitely. What's, what is that emotion about for you? There's something there. I, I think it is. I mean, obviously it's all belonging, mm -hmm. but but uh, leaving kind of the straight belonging of, you know, leaving my husband and being part of, you know, being part of a group that I was taught to kind of look down on as a kid that like, oh, they're divorced. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of navigating a lot of, you know, leaving a lot of safe harbor that and then coming out as bi and still wondering you know okay so i don't belong here anymore you know there's a very conservative side that says god hates fags you know there's there's that side i certainly don't belong there anymore mm -hmm. but now do i belong you know on the other side am i am i gay enough <laughs> to to belong you know do i get to go to pride if i'm dating a man at the time do i do I fit anywhere? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But. Yes. I'm not the, you know, I think that from my perspective, hell yeah. Yes, you do get to go to pride because that is a part of your orientation. That is who you are. And I think it's, you know, I think I, I kind of love the word queer because it kind of just for me personally, it means kind of this this term that allows me to embrace my identity. And I have dated women in the past um, and to, to be out as a bi person who's formerly dated men and very much enjoys dating men, but then to be with a woman and to say, I'm still bi. And I am still very much culturally gay. Okay, girl. And to hold <laughs> and to hold that duality is the point. To to really express the spectrum that exists within me and to say that is my version of queerness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you feel judged within the gay or the queer or the lesbian community? Are you feeling pressure? No, I, I really think the pressure is internal. Okay. Mm -hmm. What is it about you? I'm just going to maybe guess here, but what is it about you that feels not 
gay enough or not queer enough. Mm. Well, okay, so here's a really interesting story. The first date I went on with a woman, uh, which of course was the first date in a while. I was with my ex for 10 years. So I had not been in, on a date in a while, okay. Michelle's. Okay. <laughs> um, so I met this woman at a restaurant. Actually, I drove an hour. It is now in the town that I now live in, mm -hmm. uh, interestingly enough. So I drive by that restaurant sometimes. And I'm like, oh, what a weird date. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> went on this date, and it was a really interesting conversation because every time I started to kind of like redirect it back to like, tell me about yourself. Tell me about, uh, she was a research fellow at the school in the town where I live. So uh, about her research, about she was an international student, so about her life at home. And every time it just came back to, she would ask more questions about me, very specifically, uh, did you leave your husband because you discovered you were bi? Did you, how did you know that you liked women? Do you actually know if you haven't been with a woman? How, and there was this sort of like, almost like a interview of like my sexuality. And I sort of was like, well, when did you know? Like, this is not, sure. you know, this is not that different. Um, but it was sort of like, I was like an unconfirmed bi person because I had only ever been with men. So like, sure. this is still theoretic. And she said something about like, well, you know, I've been burned by dating straight women. I was like, to be clear, like I joined a dating app where I indicated that I had interested in women. I had this conversation with you. I, I'm not confused about what gender you are. I am intentionally on a date with a woman. So like, it's a little weird to still insist that this is similar to like dating a straight girl and being burdened by that. Um, and so really the whole date kind of went like that. And I didn't realize how weird it was until afterwards. Cause of course I hadn't been on a date and like, ever really like 15 years uh so I, I think that's probably part of it is and I realized looking back now she was not out to her family she had been in a relationship where the other person was quite a bit more experienced and I'm sure there was like a lot of kind of her own imposter syndrome that was coming through uh just kind of getting projected on me but it was a really interesting uh introduction to you know dating other women of like well, she identified as a lesbian, so that wasn't a problem to her. But the fact that I identified as bi and had been married and didn't leave him because of my sexuality, like that was the key for her. If I had left him because I was like so leaning lesbian on the bi side that I could not be with a man anymore, then that would have been like, oh, okay, that's proof enough that like, you know. For you're sure. not going to leave me for a man next week. Mm -hmm. um, and I like had explained to her, you know, that several men had approached me after my divorce and that I like even told them I'm not interested in men right now. Um, but that, that like wasn't proof enough that I was not secretly straight and trying to break her heart. Yes. yes. You know, I do think that there is a cultural rhetoric that, puts emphasis on our identity because of what we do sexually. And we walk around negotiating our safety based on what we and other people do sexually. And so I think that the, the problem with this is that we say, I'm safe if I know that you're going to enjoy sex with me, because that's the whole point of coming out, quote unquote. But we never put emphasis on the emotional intimacy for our safety. The part of us that says, I'm bonding to someone who makes me feel safe, who sees me, who soothes me, who, who feels like this relational security for me. And we forget to put emphasis, I think a, a lot of times, not all the time, but on the bonding that happens on the emotional layer rather than the bonding that happens on the sexual layer. We feel like sexual bondedness is more proof of how safe we're gonna be rather than the emotional bonding we're capable of creating. And I think to, to put emphasis on the sexuality piece as a form of safety will really leave us very finicky, questioning, wondering, and feeling really insecure in our relationships. Yeah. 
I also think it was really interesting. Um, so I, I think my, my dad is actually an LPC. Um, oh, well, LPC is a licensed professional counselor. His initial response when I came out to him was, I would say mixed. It was sort of like, how long have you been experiencing these urges? Like, oh no, dad, no, no, that is like, COVID for you during your coming out. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was deeply uncomfortable. Um, but I think part of that was also that he recognized how hurt I was from my relationship. And so I think there was like this, oh, well, you know, you just don't trust men right now. You'll get over it. And then, you know, you'll, you'll go back to this. Um, and I think that was hard because part of that is true. I mean, it was a really, really difficult, uh, my ex was an alcoholic and I actually have a restraining order against him. Uh, so coming out of that, you know, that's not entirely false. <laughs> I wasn't looking for another straight man. That, that was not something I was interested in, but I think that that was hard for me as well because that was partially true, but at the same time that didn't negate that you know, there was a part of me that I wanted to know. And like, you know, because I felt it was easier to, like you were saying, kind of emotionally bond with a woman at that point. Um, the reason I could make that choice is because I am bi. That is fundamentally true of me. Right. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just interesting because I think a lot of people were kind of like, eh, is this a phase? Like, mm -hmm. if it's a phase, it's been going a long time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But I think it's it's sort of you get it from both sides of this like, well, if you could be interested in men, why wouldn't you? You know, it's obviously way better to be with men because and I think that's sort of the inherent sexism of like men rule the world. And so like. Right. And I, I, I kind of another echo here. I love what you're saying, because the idea is the fact that we're even asking which one is better or that patriarchy might ask us that question really 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 um ignores the the more important question of what is true for you again because i think that what is better question is some sort of social collateral it's a social capital that we think we can pay for safety with and we don't i think the true safety is saying this gender identity or this relationship is my Home, and I am safe in my body here and I think we kind of forget to really ask ourselves what is my truth as a source of safety rather than what's better Definitely. Mm -hmm. as you're kind of feeling I have I have I'm even gonna set this up a little bit but the way that you describe your um, childhood and kind of entering marriage it seemed like you were trying to do christianity really well like you were really giving it everything you had to do it the right way to be obedient and honest and use integrity and it seems like you're kind of using and it's not a bad thing i just want to identify it it seems like you're really using that tenacity to do it the right way even as a bi person is that fair to say? Yep, I think so. Okay. I've always been a bit of an overachiever. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is, I need to do it, you know, with everything I have. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I think this is, I might be a little too Hallmark card-esque here, but your version of bisexuality is enough. And I kind of just want to ask you that very simple question of what is your truth? I think I'm still working on that. Yeah. I think we all are, but oh, for I think sure. I am in particular. It's just, there was a lot of, a lot of kind of ongoing trauma with ending my marriage, you know, that it didn't just end and go away and mm -hmm. kind of the restraining order afterwards, that it was sort of, everything just kept getting pushed off. Like, all right, well, dating again, got pushed off which was kind of intentional. I wanted to kind of create that space, but, but even now um, that order is done in October. And so there's still kind of some residual like 
it's, is it going to show up <laughs> the day after it's done? You know, um, I, I do art actually quite a bit. Um, I do art based on the quotes from children detained at the U S border. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had a couple shows and I ha- can only use my first name in all of those shows. I've moved and changed jobs and I haven't put that anywhere because mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to identify, you know, my first and last name with a location or with a business or anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's, that's, that's been a lot of a layer too. Um, I sat in the courthouse and the, so what happens when you get a restraining order uh, is you go to the court and you, you uh, appeal for a temporary one. They give you, if they, you go before a judge and if they kind of buy that you have a reason to, they give you a 10 day order and then they will actually, at least in my state, uh, they require that you and the other person be present in the courtroom while they decide if they're going to give it to you, which is, the whole experience is very oh. traumatic. Yeah, um, seriously. But sitting in that room and like hearing, so they put you with a domestic violence advocate. That's that's like part of the process. And hearing her say like, yes, domestic violence victims like you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. I know what that is. And that's not me. <laughs> um was definitely very eye-opening as well that like Mm. I married a good Christian boy Mm. I did all the things I was supposed to Mm. um I asked God if I should marry him you know I felt that confirmation in my heart Mm. my you know my parents approved his parents approved they're Southern Baptist and mine are kind of non-denominational charismatic and like I did all of these things right Mm-hmm. Like I shouldn't end up here. <laughs> right. I wonder if some of the residue is I did everything right. Can I trust myself? If I feel mm-hmm. what's true in my body, if I keep asking that question, can I trust that I will really know the answer? Definitely. And I think living with, I know we're getting a little off topic, but, but living with an alcoholic, definitely there's a lot of like gaslighting and there's a lot of what is and isn't true. And it struck me just how accustomed you become to the most bizarre things. I was telling the story to my sister, uh, who I'm very close with, and I, this was not the point of the story. I mentioned that I'd stepped over my husband on my way to work that morning. I, the story was about me getting ready for work, but he had passed out on the floor on in the entryway the night before and significantly bigger than me. I can't move him. And honestly, he's safer down there because he didn't attempt the stairs because he had fallen down the stairs several times. So like, it just didn't even occur to me that that was a strange thing to say that I had literally stepped over my husband on the way to work that morning. Um, but but yeah, those things that just become like your brain can protect you from so much by just saying like, oh, this is normal. Like we, you know, you don't feel like you have the power to change it. And so your brain just adjusts to it and you just move on. And that's sort of like, can I trust that what I think is real is like, do I know that you know, that sort of like always second guessing with other people. Like, is this normal? Do I, am I right about this? That you sort of come away with after, you know, living in a world just upended by addiction. It, it did sort of erode my trust in like my own perceptions in myself. Like, mm-hmm. is this real? Because you realize how much your brain can do to just make so many things seem normal. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think another big piece is um, the availability of options that we give ourselves. You know, I think coming out, it's a major self-concept shift to think of yourself as being part of a different culture, to think of yourself as the person who will now hold hands with someone of the same gender or kiss the same gender in public. 
and you know becoming quote unquote that person is such an identity transformation a self-concept adjustment that it's so hard to say can i trust that i know who i am to take myself through that transition because what if i get there and i'm not happy can i trust myself and that is i think a big question especially i think if you come from a conservative religious background because you know there's this idea of um, backsliding and um, mortal sins and, and i mean it can get really complex in the way that we can break our own trust and i think the focus on sexuality as being like like coming back to you know your own identity of like you like the ultimate the flesh translation mm-hmm. was sex and sexuality like it's just yeah it's, it's a it's a whole different thing and so like risking being wrong about that is mm-hmm. is definitely you know what if what if i come out and i am wrong you know i'm an unconfirmed bi person like the person i dated you know what if i go through all of this and then i'm like oh just kidding i actually do like men you know what is that going to be for those conversations i had with my family for um my brother-in-law so i'm very close to my sister i've got a lot of siblings um but my brother-in-law is very conservative um and he's a first generation mexican immigrant and so that's you know there's some culture in there as well but he told my sister that my girlfriend was not welcome at their house Mm -hmm. oh so painful so and she's actually the only one who lives in the same state as me so my parents who are very conservative are coming down from five states away and they're willing to have her at the table and in the room but if i take her to my sister's house then i have to go by myself Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right yeah and again we ask ourselves am i making the right choice is this worth it is this really what i want and the pressure let's let's pivot just for a second what do you feel like is true do you feel like the way that you would love and cherish another woman is stable is that ability in you yeah definitely absolutely is the ability to love her and feel seen by her does it kind of hit that core button that feels like love and intimacy Definitely. but there's still the doubt of okay mm-hmm. i had that with my husband as well before things went wrong and you know did i have that is that you know have i ever been in love is that actually something i can trust about myself because you know so many so much of that was untrue and i didn't know um i never gave this note to him but a note that i wrote kind of the night i left is like you like you are you have become proficient in lying to me and you can't unlearn that you know and Mm -hmm. Like, if that's a primary language for you, that's always going to be, you know, distinguishing that is always going to be a secondary language for me. Mm-hmm. And so, like, even if, you know, even if he got sober, which I hope that he is, and, you know, changed his life, that that's never, you know, a trust that can be rebuilt because you know, you know how, you, you know what works with me, you know you know, what buttons to press to distract or confuse me, you know, what to say to gaslight me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard to come back and say, okay, well, like, do I actually know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and can I trust myself to know, mm-hmm. you know, is this, you know, relationship that ended? Mm-hmm. How, how should I look at it? You know, how, how do I, you know, of course you get the, oh, it was, it was all good and it ended, you know, well, or the like, everything was terrible and, you know, never should have been together. But like, it's, it's just so hard because there's so many situations where we cannot uh, bring to the light and compare notes mm-hmm. that you just don't, 
you don't know. And I think my parents felt that strongly with finding out what was happening in my marriage Mm -hmm. and saying, well, like, you know, we have a good marriage. Why would you ever stay somewhere like that? And the answer was, you just, you don't know. Mm -hmm. You don't know what's normal. And we don't talk about what's normal. You know, what, what constitutes a regular argument Mm -hmm. and what constitutes something that's like really rather worrying. Mm -hmm. And even afterward in like getting this protective order, I didn't know. I was just sort of like, I just sent a long email to my divorce lawyer and was like, here's a bunch of things that's happening. And he picked one out and was like, whoa, no, that can't happen. Like that is harassment, cannot happen. You need to go apply for a protective order. But like without somebody to say, you know, Mm -hmm. okay, well, is him contacting me, you know, through friends on Facebook normal? Is him emailing me every day at my work email after I've left him on my phone normal? Like all of these, but there's no recourse for any of those things. If it hadn't been the one thing that I had mentioned, Mm -hmm. the law doesn't protect me. So yeah, it's just kind of a lot of what is real and like, who do you go to with some of these stuff, some of this stuff to figure out because you think it's normal. That's, that's, what it all comes down to is in these sort of gaslighting situations, you, you adjust your normal. And so, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's kind of the power of community of like, Hey, is this normal? Uh, (laughs) I agree. I agree. It sounds to me like the thing that you're really questioning is if you're going to be safe or not. Yeah. Can I trust myself to to not walk into an unsafe position? Yes, and can I trust myself to notice if I have? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, for sure. No one can, you know, I feel like this is almost like a high school diploma. Like you finished all the courses and no one can ever take it away from you. Even if they shred the piece of paper, you have it. You know what being unsafe feels like now. And I think that's quite a training course that you'll never forget. The other thing that comes to mind is it sounds like you have some pretty lovely parents who love you. And I think you know what love feels like. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, I'm guessing, what it feels like to love another person. And that I think is so trustworthy. Yes, mm-hmm. but I loved him. Mm-hmm. But sweetie, maybe you actually did. And maybe he betrayed that. Maybe you did and then it fell apart and dissolved. Mm-hmm. I, I have loved, and I still do, someone who abused me. I still love the first man I dated and the first girl I slept with. I really do still feel love for them. I, I think love is bottomless. It's not the love that I have for my partner now, that's for sure. That makes sense. Practice trusting is something I say. It pops up on these podcast episodes fairly often. It seems to be a theme. Yeah. <laughs> I would say, I would definitely say practice trusting yourself again. Until, you know, one of my first therapists said something along the lines, I'm not going to quote him well, but he said, Isaac, trust the place that knows. When I was sitting on this chair, I was 26 saying, am I straight? Am I gay? Am I bi? What's the matter with me? (laughs) I think she's attractive and then I think he's hot. And what is this? And the poor man would just say, Isaac, trust the place that knows. Yeah. And it took a little while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does it bring any sort of peace or um, regret or embarrassment to say that maybe the love that you felt for him was actually love? No, I think... I mean, I think I knew that. I think, and and I think in his own way, that was also, you know, kind of damaged and and 
bent by the opposite of all of those rules that were taught to me, I think he loved me too. Um, yeah, I've, I've always loved easily. Mm -hmm. But, but I think it is hard not to feel regret that like, oh, well, I was so naive. Well, yeah, I was. For sure. Yep. And now I'm not. And now I'm not. Yep. And now I can see that, you know, in other people and say, well, mm -hmm. totally. And not even that's not love, which I think is the message we hear. It might be love, but it's, it's still wrong. It's mm -hmm. still not, not wrong, but it's, it's still harmful mm -hmm. and it's not where you need to stay. Right. Sounds weird to maybe hear a therapist saying this, but love is not enough to make relationships work. It's not. Yeah. Yep. And that's kind of where I had to go. Like, I still love him. I think he still loves me, but there's not trust here anymore. And right. at that point, you know, some things are not fixable. Mm -hmm. I kind of find myself wondering if you're kind of seeing a, a, maybe some open space to really trust yourself to know what love is, but maybe another question is, can I trust love to be safe for me? Yeah, definitely. And with the right person, yeah. I cut you off. And I think that comes back to the message of like, this, this sort of, you caused men to sin around you. There, there is sort of that still an internalized like, okay, well, mm -hmm. like, did I make my husband an alcoholic? Like, did I? Because all of those things still get sort of like blamed back. Like, oh, well, he's cheating. Well, was she not sexually available to him? Like, there's sort of this, right, right. Yeah, like, is this something I do to people I love? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, I. I yeah, something else that I talk often about because it's everywhere and it's to know about it is so protective. But we are steeped and trained and inoculated with this illusion of control. The illusion is I can control someone else's behaviors. I can control someone else's choices. Yeah. You know, I was sexually assaulted in college um, and it took me a long time to recognize that he made the choices he made irrespective of any other position I had put myself in. You know, it was if I hadn't taken that walk or if I hadn't had that last shot or if I would have just went home with my friend, if I, if I, if I, if I am wearing so much blame and then to think, he was just an asshole who made a decision over and over and over and over and over and, over and he made the choice. And, and in your case, was he, was there addiction? Sure. Is there a disease? Absolutely. But his choices are his choices. And sometimes I think we, we want to avoid the word victim because it's not a savory word and we don't appreciate it, but sometimes we are legitimately victimized. And part of being victimized is the shame, is the illusion of control, the feelings of responsibility. But then this part, and this is the crappiest one, the, the, one of the biggest parts I think of being victimized is that we lose the ability to trust ourselves. Yeah. So I, I, in this way, I don't want you to say, oh, look, I can't trust myself or I'm not a good by person or do I really love? And, and maybe it's the shift of saying, I'm still cleaning up the mess of being victimized. This isn't something broken in me. This is the residue of that abuse. Yeah. It's a lot easier to hear and think about someone else. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm putting the onus. It's very on easy for me to be like, it wasn't your fault, mm -hmm. but much easier, mm -hmm. much more difficult to say it wasn't mine. Mm -hmm. Right. Listen, y'all. 
The unfolding of our sexual orientation is a blossoming. The fabulous research by Lisa Diamond, noted in her seminal book, Sexual Fluidity, lays out what many experience, sexual fluidity. My coming out and the trajectory of my sexual orientation will be dramatically different than yours, and that's wonderful. But sometimes those of us in the queer community start to project our fluidity and our limitations and our experiences onto others, leaving many people feeling sequestered from belonging. Rejection in any form is harmful, and sometimes rejection is just flat-out traumatic, especially if it's violent or violates our boundaries. Trauma often comes with some sneaky and very unfortunate side effects like self-shame and self-blame. Carried feelings are the feelings we experience and take responsibility for when, in fact, they belong to our perpetrators. Let me throw out an example. Just roll with me here. Let's say my partner explodes in anger after hearing I spent too much money on clothes. His violent and immature demonstration of anger is thrusted on me as though I deserved the inappropriate lashing. In my mind and in my heart, I might feel as though my actions quote-unquote made him do what he did. As a result, I might feel that my immaturity elicited such violence. Instead of holding an appropriate boundary between his behavior and mine, I carry his immaturity by assuming his anger was my fault. Even though he did something inappropriate and immature, I carry the feelings for him as though I'm the immature one who did something inappropriate. In other words, our perpetrators do something shameful and something for which they should take the blame. But instead, trauma convinces us to carry those feelings for them. Carried feelings are prevalent when we come out and listen to the immature beliefs and prejudice reactions of others. Something like, my sister thinks my lifestyle is wrong, and maybe it is. We take their inappropriate rejections and hold them towards ourselves. Furthermore, carried feelings will help us feel as though our body isn't ours, as though we are more safe following the guidelines and meeting others' expectations. Carried feelings lead us to believe we are damaged and flooded with a sense of self-mistrust. Carried feelings are powerful yet sneaky. When we combine the powerful forces of shame, we get a dynamic duo with carried feelings. See, after we participate in the behaviors that leave us feeling shamed, we tell ourselves that we will never do it again, that we'll never drink that much or never eat that much or never sleep with that person again. But because shaming behaviors often come with pleasure, And because shame is a medication for our misery, we find ourselves doing the behavior one more time. And after a couple of cycles, we begin to realize that we can't even trust ourselves like a monster who's totally against us living inside of our core. When we have tried to love and loved with every fiber of being and it still fails, we will hear the messages of self-mistrust playing its unstoppable tune. Can I trust myself to love? And can I even trust love? We will question with great uncertainty. There are so many facets to love and earning our own trust back, and I could talk about this for days. But I will say, we know how to love. It is hardwired into our brains But to find our way back to sustainable and trustworthy versions of love, we first have to address our shame, call out our carried feelings, and find trustworthy people with whom we can practice trusting again. And when we find them, we have to be open to letting their sincere love soak into our core. We have to be brave enough to let it be true, not just as a cognitive thought, but as an emotional felt sense truth that says, I am loved. To all my bi people out there, we walk a thin line. Sometimes we're too gay for straight partners and our dating history is confusing and scary for them. But we also face queer gatekeepers who are threatened by our straight dating history as well. To this I say, find your language. Get to know your attractions and your tale of sexual orientation as it unfolded throughout your life. Find the language that will help you clearly articulate how your emotional desires 
drive you towards emotional intimacy because that is truly the mortar of any relationship way more than sexual intimacy. And as you feel your true knowing stabilize your confidence in your truth, sexually and romantically, you'll have the language to assuage the fears of those who might have been burned by love before. I say this a lot, but it bears repeating. The primary function of sexual orientation is not to tell you whose body you'll enjoy. The primary function of sexual orientation is to guide you toward the life-changing love you most deeply crave. So in this light, what if we came out as emotional beings rather than sexual beings? We might better understand and trust the nature of emotionality that leads to sexuality. We might be more primed to fall for and trust more readily the person who will create emotional intimacy with us rather than prioritizing someone who does something sexually for us. Thank you to today's guest. I thoroughly enjoyed my time with her. Her energy was like sitting with a great friend. Vulnerability breeds vulnerability. And I want to thank the guest for creating a wonderful space and a sample of what emotional intimacy looks like. Until next time. Queer Relationships is a podcast sponsored by I Am Clinic, a counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. I Am Clinic, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at I Am Clinic. That's I-A-M Clinic. Clinic.